Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit and open us up to you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, would you take my words and anoint them? Would you take your scripture and open it? Above all, Lord, we pray that you would keep away from us, far away from us, all schemes of our enemy, that we might truly walk the road of Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I've said this before, probably every preacher this year has, but I'm going to say it again. 2020 has been a year like no other in our lifetime. The compounded stress, the uncertainty, the upheaval, the anxiety, the anger, the loss, the change, oh, so much change, and change continues to go on. There is no normal, and we're not going to get back to normal. Something new is emerging. The racial issues and the divisions, the civil unrest, the political turmoil, the hatred and fear and diatribe being spread by the media and by people over social media, natural disasters, locusts, for goodness sake. The worldwide pandemic, and on top of it all, a presidential and other elections. In fact, voting day is just over a week away, and perhaps some of you have already been to the polls. For me, this will be my ninth presidential election in which to vote. And I'm pretty sure in most of those elections, people have said, this is the most important election of all. And I've certainly heard that said a lot lately with regard to this particular election from both sides, from good people who have a real concern for our country, from Christian people in both political parties who are worried, maybe even panicked over the immediate issues that we face as well as the long-term trajectory that the decisions we make in just over a week will set in motion or reinforce. I mean, think for just a moment, what if the candidate you do not want becomes the president, is elected to serve our country? What will you do? How will you respond? What will your outlook be on the present and the future? Can you imagine having peace regardless of the outcome of the election? What if you could have assurance, even in the next four years or eight years or 16 years, even if we lose every religious freedom that we have in this country, What if you could find security apart from what happens in our government? That's where our text in Luke 20 points us. To the place of peace, no matter who wins the election. And then I would also say as a means of application, it is from that place of peace that you can formulate how you will actually vote 
on election day. Let's go to the text. And I remind you by way of context, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. We've been working our way over these past, really over a month, as he's getting closer and closer, having gone through the border regions between Samaria and Galilee. He's now there. He's in Jerusalem. It's the final week of his ministry before going to the cross to die as the Savior of the world. And he is in the midst of a confrontation with the Jewish leadership. This is actually the third confrontation that he's had as he's in the proximity of the temple, teaching in the temple courts each day. Remember, he's turned over the money changers' tables and he's just told a parable about them that they don't like. It's Passover week. Jerusalem is absolutely crammed full of people with pilgrims from all over Judea and throughout Israel and all the known world. Uh, We've got to think like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at Easter. Or maybe for a secular example, think Times Square on New Year's Eve. The place is crammed full of people. Verse 19 says, The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. For they had perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. See, the leadership does not like the fact that he has been publicly critiquing them and discrediting them. And there's nothing new about that. That is common to leadership in every generation. Leadership doesn't like to be critiqued. Power does not like to become up against, no matter the nation, no matter the age, no matter the nationality. And so the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, many of whom were from the Pharisee group, and we've heard a lot about the Pharisees, and the secular leaders, the Herodians, who were pro-Roman politicians, as well as the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the Jewish politicians overseeing the matters of state in the Jewish region of things, they all come into alignment. They all come into partnership for political reasons. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want him in Roman custody where he could be subject to the death penalty. You've heard the expression, politics makes strange bedfellows. That's what's happening here. So they hatch a plan to trap Jesus, and when in doubt, just ask him about his politics. Verse 21. So they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. That's flattery, by the way. It's not sincere. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In other words, should we pay our taxes to Rome? And of course, remember, there are Roman soldiers all over the place because they're there for crowd control. So this is a heated environment. It kind of reminds me of the scene in Star Wars Return of the Jedi when the Rebel Alliance is coming out of hyperspace and all their ships and they're about to descend on the new Death Star Han Solo and Luke Skywalker have gone to Endor to try to get the shields down and suddenly the fleet realizes the shields are still up and the Empire knows they're coming and then that weird looking guy, Admiral Akbar, says, It's a trap! (laughs) 
Sorry, I geeked out for a moment there. Well, what's the trap? If Jesus says, pay your taxes, then he stands to be unpopular with the people who hated the taxes. There was a poll tax that was put upon them, and there were high taxes in the cities and in the towns where they lived, and they resented the Romans. And then there were the zealots who were particularly intense, a political party with religious affiliation who believed that it was idolatry to submit to Rome and to pay the taxes. And so if he said pay the tax, it also calls into question his allegiance not only to his country, but also to God. But on the other hand, if he says don't pay your taxes, he'll be seen as a revolutionary. And Rome's policy with revolutionaries was basically kill them hard, publicly, crucify them. But Jesus is not fooled. Verse 23, But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He says, Show me a coin. And they hand him a denarius, which basically was about a day's wages. And he holds it up. And he looks them square in the eye and he says, whose picture and name is on this coin? Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And it's a brilliant response because not only does he avoid the trap, but he also shows people how to relate to earthly government. This one sentence, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's gives the beginning of a Christian view of politics and religion. It's foundational for looking at issues of church and state, of God and government. Jesus affirmed what the scriptures show, that governments, even pagan governments, have a right to exist and to expect things from their people like taxes. As David Platt says in his book, Before You Vote, seven questions every Christian should ask, quote, government is a a God-ordained institution for the purpose of promoting good and restraining evil. The purpose of government is to provide for the good of people and to punish the bad conduct among people. The Apostle Paul says it this way in that lesson from Romans 13, Trevor read us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. But by saying submit to the government or render unto Caesar, neither Paul nor Jesus means simply be passive doormats accepting everything our government does as though it comes directly from God. And therefore, it isn't to be questioned or challenged or changed. In his book, Reading While Black, And the subheading is African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Yes, that's a mouthful. African-American Anglican theologian Esau Macaulay makes the case from both the Old Testament and from Romans chapter 9, verse 16, that while Christians are called to submit to the government, we should also realize that God judges corrupt regimes. And he uses humans to remove corrupt governments. To quote Macaulay, 
submitting to the government doesn't mean a Christian can't protest injustice. It means we cannot claim God's justification for violent revolution. His point is very much the point that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made, that it is wrong for Christians to stand around doing nothing in the face of injustice. We are actually called to change unjust political systems, but to do so peacefully, not through violence. Now, I think that rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's can be applied immediately in this election season to mean that we as Christians are called to participate fully in the governmental process in which we live. We have a privilege and a responsibility in the midst of our representative form of government of the people, by the people, for the people. We have a privilege and a responsibility to engage. And I mean, this is a novel thing. It's only a couple of hundred years old that we're participating in. This is new to the world. We have the privilege to vote, to either affirm the leadership in our country or to change it. The question is, though, how do you make the right or perhaps best choice in the way you vote? And back to what I originally asked you at the beginning of this sermon, how can you have peace regardless of the outcome of the election, especially if the candidate or political party you vote for doesn't win? Well, you begin with the second part of what Jesus said, render unto God the things that are God's. So let's think again about that coin Jesus held up. It had Caesar's image on it. Caesar's likeness was stamped upon it. And he asked the question, whose image is this? Well, if we think for a minute about the question, render unto God the things that are God's, Whose image is stamped on you? Genesis 1, using the very same word that Jesus used, says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God's image is stamped on every human heart, both males and females. God's image is stamped on your heart. It may be marred, battered, broke down, beaten up, bruised, but it's still there. As David Platt says, though Caesar may be worthy of a coin, only God is worthy of our hearts. No worldly leaders or governmental authority or political party is worthy of our ultimate trust or allegiance or hope because they will fail us. They cannot give the ultimate protection they so often promise. And you see it in the Scriptures. All you have to do is read the book of Kings. And you can see it even in the really good kings, like Josiah and David, a man after God's own heart. David still made huge errors, particularly in his leadership that negatively affected the people whom he ruled. There is truly only one leader who is worthy of our hearts, and he is the one called the Son of Man, whom the Scripture declares is now seated far above all rule and power and authority and dominion, both on earth and in heaven, at the right hand of the throne of God, and his kingdom is not of this world. 
It is to him that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And why? It was because he's the only one who emptied himself fully of his rights and his glory and his power in his obedience to God and for the sake of his followers. So taxes and respect and honor and voting, that's what belongs to the governing authorities. But what belongs to God, you do. Your life and your existence, your everything, you belong to him because his image is stamped upon you. And you can reject that, or you can be estranged from that, or you can yield. The way to render to God the things that are God's is to give God your whole life. Not just once, but daily. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Yield to his lordship, which means his ultimate leadership in your life. When you do that, you can live in the place of peace no matter who wins or loses the election. No matter what the outcome is, you don't have to panic or tear other people down or lose hope even if you lose your earthly freedoms, even if you were to lose your life, because ultimately one day He will return and make all things right or you will go to Him. And all things will be right. It's from that place, that place of peace in Him, having rendered unto God the things that are God's, our lives, it's from that place that you vote. You begin by loving God, first and foremost, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. I read that at the beginning. We say that every week. It's the summary of the law, the law of the kingdom, the law that is to be in our hearts and from which, as his people, we are called to live in the world. That's what shapes us as Christians. And as you grow in spiritual maturity, you have to recognize that most American political platforms, whether they're Democratic or Republican, They market themselves to you for what you get out of it. They offer promises of making your life and your children's lives better. They emphasize what you deserve to have or to keep. But the law of the kingdom is to put other people first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus calls us as those who are his to follow his example by prioritizing other people's needs first above our rights and especially those who are poor and powerless and who are oppressed. God calls for justice for the needy, justice for the impoverished, justice for the refugee. Now, let me just say, don't tune me out because I use the J word. Or gloat because I use the J word. Justice, by the way, is the J word here. So many words have been co-opted and weaponized in our culture for political purposes. Justice is a biblical word. Social justice is part of God's heart. There are more than 100 Bible passages about God's concern for the oppressed and the powerless. You cannot read the Bible with your eyes open and your heart open and not see that we are called to do justice in the world, that is a big part of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have got to, as Christians, prayerfully take justice needs and helping people into account as we live and as we vote. And that may cause you, perhaps, to vote for the Democratic Party, who broadly emphasizes issues of justice. 
But here's the thing. Don't, don't leave me. Stay with me. Here's the thing. God is also for life. And especially the lives of the unborn. Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5 says, Before you are formed in your mother's womb, I knew you, and I set your life apart. Like, I got a plan for you that started before you were born into this world. It started in the womb. God knows us even in the womb. And the Bible is totally clear that God is the God of life. And you can definitely argue that those who are most powerless and even oppressed, with no voice at all, well, it's the unborn. And so the Bible calls us to support life also. And that may cause you to vote for Republicans who tend to emphasize a pro-life position. Now, these are just two of the issues going on, right? Then there's the economy, and there's judges, and there's environment, and a whole bunch more. Taxes. I'm focusing on these two because these are the ones that are most specifically aligned, particularly and especially with loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's why this political climate, particularly for Christians, is so challenging and so confusing because in a two-party system, we're generally forced to make either-or decisions. But we can't stop there. See, if you believe you're called to vote for Democratic candidates who could generally be classified as supporting the poor and the immigrant and the marginalized, you can't stop there. You have a moral imperative to advocate also for the unborn. And if you believe you're called to vote for Republican candidates who could be generally classified as supporting life, you can't stop there either. You have to be willing to put in place structures that support children once they are born. And that will be costly economically and emotionally. You may have to take children into your own home. I heard Mother Teresa speak in the, in the mid-80s in Charlotte. And she was, as you would guess, advocating a pro-life position. But what she said was, give me your children. She was the first person I had ever heard advocate that position and say, I'll take the babies. And of course, her life backed that up. Let me quote something that Pope Francis said in his remarks on the 25th anniversary of Pope John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae. It means the gospel of life. Pope said, The gospel of life is at the heart of Jesus' message, welcomed by the church every day with love. It must be announced with courageous fidelity as good news to men of all ages and cultures. He went on to say, The life we are called to promote and defend is not an abstract concept, but always manifests itself in a person in flesh and blood. A newly conceived child, a poor marginalized person, a sick person alone and discouraged or in a terminal state, one who has lost his job or is unable to find it, a rejected or ghettoized migrant. And so he points us beyond the simple answers that politicians want to give and what has become an either-or system, and he points us to the harder place of being Christ's people in the world. And, of course, not exactly fitting. There's a reason the Bible says that we're going to live as aliens and strangers in this world. So Jesus calls us to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to render unto God the things that are God's. 
We love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And we do so whether the road ahead for us as Christians is easy or it's hard. Whether it's in the midst of a culture you recognize and admire or you struggle with and dislike. Whether you will grieve in the days ahead or you will rejoice. His promise is the same. I will be with you. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you to the very end of the age. And friends, we've got to recognize this. I just need to say this as your pastor. I mean, I guess I've said it all as your pastor, but particularly with a great love and care for this church and this church is y'all and everybody else who calls Holy Cross their home, that we are a very unusual church. You're going, yeah, it's because you're leading us. But beside that, what I mean is what makes us unusual is that we actually have people in our church in both political parties who love Jesus and are going to vote differently in the week ahead. Most churches just get around them a bunch of people who agree with them in everything, theologically and politically. That, that's true. And, and yet somehow in God's grace, and perhaps it's because we have emphasized Jesus and grace, we have people across a broad political spectrum. So, my point as your pastor is in the days ahead, please don't gloat or assume the person you're talking to within the church thinks exactly like you do. Because some will be disappointed in what comes and some will rejoice in what comes. And the Bible says they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Think about the twelve disciples, the apostles. They did not agree on very much. Certainly not very much in the world. You've got fishermen and you've got Pharisees and you've got zealots and you've got traitors to the nation, tax collectors, all in this group. And yet they held together because Jesus was the center. That's our vision and our purpose and our hope to which we are called in the days ahead in whichever way this election in this nation goes, that in Christ we can hold together despite differences. Let's pray. Father, thank You, even in the midst of something that may sound hard and jarring, thank You that You don't call us to easy roads. You call us to walk with You, to grow in Your Word and to struggle well with life with You and with each other. And so we pray your mercy over this church and in our lives and over our nation that whoever is elected, well, ultimately they will be in place because it is your will. And so, Lord, show us how to walk this road with charity in our hearts in the midst of differences and love in our hearts for Jesus and for each other and for a world that desperately needs to see something different in the church. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.